Hey, welcome back to the Big Esports Podcast. In this episode, we've got Wim Stocks. Wim has an extensive history in the traditional games and then into the esports market. I had him on previously in a joint podcast with Ben Pfefferman from Amuka Esports talking about their company's economic response to coronavirus and how they're faring, but I needed to get Wim back on solo because... There's so much this man's doing that I wanted to talk about, and he really got my brain flowing throughout this episode. I really, really enjoyed this chat, as I have, you know, I think really with the past 50 to 60 or so, I think that, you know, we're really finding our stride here in the Big Esports Podcast, and I'm enjoying the content that I'm putting out, so hopefully you're enjoying it too. And if you are, just drop a review if you'd like, or send us through a message. We've got a lot of positive messages from people, and also suggestions of guests, always happy to take them. Enjoy this episode. I know I did. For those of you who have also lost your employment or are looking to skill up, we're trying to help here at Big Esports. We have an esports fundamentals course, which is helping people to understand an entry point into the employment within the esports and gaming market, whether you're coming straight out of college, university, high school, or whether you're trying to transition from another sport. To provide support for all of you, we're offering a pay-as-you-feel model. So you can head to bigesports.gg forward slash education. If you've lost your main line of employment and you can't afford to pay right now, at all that's perfectly fine we're able to offer it up to you for free you can pay now you can pay later you can choose whatever you want the course is usually 127 dollars aud you can take it now for whatever you feel is appropriate or whatever you're able to afford hopefully this will help a few of you get back on your feet in the short term and also the long term wim we're live how are you chris good morning to you in uh in australia it's a night night here thursday night thursday night's always a good night because it means tomorrow's friday (laughs) <laughs> that's very true and as i like to say to um you know clients and friends in the us we're living in the future here in australia and the, the future's still bright the world's still the world's still turning we're, we're doing well we're having a good friday and and morning and we're having a, a really good thursday night so uh that's great yeah yeah exactly i have to apologize as soon as you start the live stream um this is what happens in coronavirus times my dog's running around the house barking so just give me one second and i'll, I'll go and sort that out yeah. <laughs> It's okay. This is what, what, what the pandemic has, has brought us all. The ability to be be impromptu and to roll with the roll with the punches. Well, I mean that's that's pretty apt to, to start a conversation, I guess. You know, our stream goes live, my dog goes crazy because we're all working from home from coronavirus. So for those people who've um, you know been listening to some of the content for a period of time when coronavirus was still fresh, we had Wim and we also had Ben Pfefferman. Um, from Canada, from Amuka Capital and Amuka Esports on board to talk about a bit of coronavirus and economic response and things like that. And one of the main things that you said, Wim, is right now your phone is blowing up 24-7 with presidents of basically every single um, media network calling you, asking for content. I'd be interested in kind of kicking off the conversation with that. Are you, are you still getting these you know, mainstream organizations looking for, for esports programming? We, we are and uh, just had a, a sort of a, a, a conversation yesterday which about, with a bunch of regional sports networks um, that are represented under a, an umbrella of a media company and, and all, you know, still to this day, you know, baseball comes back, Major League Baseball comes back tonight in the United States. So that's a good thing. Um, more normalcy, seeing PGA, seeing uh, some, some driving events, some, some of those are coming back, but still... Um, esports is the is the predominant sport these days, and and uh, it's yeah yes it's on Twitch and yes it's on YouTube and and showing up on Facebook Gaming and elsewhere. But but now the these these I, I think what what has happened in the pandemic is that these traditional um, broadcasters, traditional traditional networks now not only do they understand what esports is and know it's it's a replacement for for sports. Um, that, as I mentioned, I think last time that genie's out of the bottle, it's not going back in the bottle, but also they're, they're now really sort of waking up to the fact that, man, we need younger audiences here. We, you know, our, this 50 year old, um, uh, baseball, uh, demographic isn't going to, is, isn't going to be around forever. The 60 year old PGA demographic is not going to be around forever. So, so, mm-hmm. um, they're all waking up to the fact that this is the way. To communicate with and and affi- affiliate with a much more youthful audience of uh, millennials and Gen Zs, and it's it's now it's home to roost. These guys get it, they get it, and they understand that they've got now got to figure figure out how to be involved. Whether or not they can be involved is another ma- is another matter entirely. I think esports um, doesn't need traditional media as much as traditional media needs esports. 
Um, but but they're gonna, you know, this is their livelihood. This is what they do. They know they know broadcast. They know entertainment. They know how to to engage uh, millions of people. And and uh, with the with the right formula, with the right approach, I think I think they have they have a shot at this. But but thus far, as we all know, um, this is all played out on stream and online, and and mm-hmm. not necessarily other. You know, we were just reflecting yesterday in this conversation about Turner. Turner had it right early. Turner really had it right early with with their first. E League and for Counter Strike and and not only did they have it right, but the brands that they brought in to support it, they also had it right. And that was that was four years ago. That was a long time ago. And and in the scheme of things, yet they made some of their forays into into broadcasting esports and and bringing predictability around the broadcast. That that still to to me stands up as one of the one of the great moments in in uh, in sort of the de- de- democratization of of, of esports. So. So uh, I think I think I, I don't think it's over for traditional media. I think um, there's plenty of opportunity, especially as as now more organization comes to esports. It is getting more predictable. There are more path A's to you know point A to point B for for players, for events, for um, uh, and and the notion of broadcast, a predictable broadcast, a scheduled broadcast that uh, we all we all know um, you know even if you're in Australia, I think you pretty much know that NFL owns Sundays, and they own it at at uh, 1 p.m. Eastern time and 4 p.m. Eastern time at 8 and 8:30 Eastern time on on a Sunday. That's but, but esports doesn't have that, so I do think this is what, what predictability, what what um, scheduling and programming can do uh, for esports. These these big networks that are tr- more traditionally focused, I think they have. I do think they have a place in in this mix. I like that predictability thing that you said. There's there's been a lot of thinking I've been doing about how can esports take what the UFC has done and doing and take some yeah. of those cues from there because the UFC to me really seems to function like a new age sport. And even though it's very different, even though a lot of the time it's focused on the media and the personality, not necessarily the best fighter, and because of those are the people that can sell the best pay per views. Say, take yeah. for anyone who's a fan, you know, Kamara Usman just defended his welterweight belt, but he sold many many less pay per views than you know, someone like a Conor McGregor or someone like that who's who's doesn't have anywhere near as of stellar record as Kamaru does, but is much more interesting fighter and, you right. know, talks a lot more smack on the mic. But the interesting thing when you were talking about that regular programming, I was thinking that's actually what I do enjoy about the UFC because while they're in different countries, different states all the time, I know all the time that for me, it's a Sunday morning from, you know, right. around 9am right. to around 1pm. That's when the UFC is on basically every week. So I know that I can tune at that time. I don't forget. And it's always one of the best and the worst things about esports, especially Counter-Strike. There's just so much content on all the time. You know, even even in Australia at one point, I think in 2019, we had four or five different leagues happening at the same time. You know, there's a Zowie BenQ Asia League qualifiers. There was an ongoing Let's Play Live League. There was an ongoing ESL League. There was ongoing ESCA Mountain Dew League. And there was also another qualifiers for, I believe, DreamHack or something like that. And it's just so much content all the time. It's hard to know, okay, which team is the best? You could argue, you know, Team Order is the best because they won the ESEA um, Mountain Dew League, but then you could say, well, they didn't even compete in Let's Play Live against this other team that wasn't in there. So are they the best? And who knows? And then yeah. when is the content happening? What tournaments matter more than others? And, and it does become quite confusing. The other the thing I really wanted to ask you more about too, you were talking about regional. And we've been doing a little bit of work here over coronavirus with local sports. Um you know, we've got an example here. There's a Australian Football League um, sports league which has 10,000 kids that play in it, for example. So a significant amount of, of kids and, you know, they're looking at how they can activate on gaming and stuff. And this has got me rethinking again how esports can better localise because community sports drive a lot of the economy here in Australia, the local barbershops, you know, the local cafes, the local mechanics and the butchers and things like that. But on an esports level, everybody's focused on the global. They're focused on signing an NBA team like the Misfits yeah. has just done. They're focused on the global Razor and Steel Series sponsorship on getting BMW in. But is is that something that that you guys are, are going to be really taking control of? You know, working with local colleges, but also you mentioned you know potential local TV radio stations. The the um, the best. It's a it's a great it's a great question, Chris. And and we we believe wholeheartedly that there's a ton of opportunity in the local and the regional. Um, implementations and in, in initiatives around esports and and our our frame of course is, is college our biggest frame is college and um we we've always been up and up until this year we've been largely 
uh, you know, engendering in, in intercollegiate competitions, meaning, you know, putting schools into conferences, organizing matches between the schools in those conferences, uh, bracketing them into a, into a playoff circumstance and then have a, a grand finals or a championship. That's, that's always been our model. And it, and it can't say it, it, it doesn't work well, it works really well, but, but what we haven't done and up until this year is that uh, is to help the schools build more local presence for what they're doing with esports, And, and we have a whole new set of initiatives for this year. We just launched our, we're about to launch, but I'll give you a little um, uh, reveal here that I haven't given, we haven't given uh, uh, in the public, in the marketplace yet, but we're building uh, intramural leagues now for schools so that they can keep their, their students engaged um, in their school, with their school via an intramural league. If it, and I think, I'll show you, you know what intramural is, right? This is the, no. oh, you don't? Oh, okay. No. So in the, in the U.S., um, there's the big college programs, the big sports program. You can you know, play football or basketball at a varsity mm -hmm. level or, or junior varsity level. But, but then there's a whole substructure to that, which, which are referred to as intramurals. And that's, um, you know, uh, a, a fraternity, a, a set of fraternities playing one another in a softball uh, league or uh, pickup pick up, um, teams playing in a, in a uh, league that is really meant to be intra-school, intra-collegiate. And that's a big dynamic for participation and sports participation in the United States, especially in the college realm. And so that for, the, for the first time, uh, this, this school year, we'll be introducing and allowing schools, enabling schools to build inter intramural leagues so that they can engage students with a, with a, um, a school initiative. This is really this, this whole intramural, uh, rather than being led by the students or the teams on the on a college campus led by this by the schools themselves the administration saying we're we we want our kids to to engage more with us uh we know we can't engage with them physically at this point because of of COVID. so what's the next mm -hmm. best way to do it it's, it's to do it online and and so we've created we've taken the intercollegiate realm and make it make it have made it intra school so that uh our our first uh, couple of leagues of these will have five six different leagues um, really centered on the, sc the schools, the, the kids in enrolled in those schools, playing the kids also enrolled in those schools, either team team or based or individually or whatever the, whatever the game is. So, so that's a that's a big initiative. And it, you know, speaks to to your point of then the school has a big initiative around which local sponsors can be can be involved. They can be mm. go to all of a sudden now. There's an on campus presence for esports that it they likely will be. Once, once um, everything gets back to live activations on campus, they could they could set up these intramurals in a student union. They could they could uh, play in a land center. They could set up their own venues. Um, and all of a sudden, now with with big followings, not only virtually um, online, but also potentially as live events, the local pizza guy, the local beverage company, the the local yeah. uh, merchant could can get involved and support esports and and start getting a. An aff affiliation or affinity to that, so we that's that's that hasn't really even started yet. That's just really getting going. But we know that as we see, you know, Overwatch League being successful with garnering a, a team in Houston or a team in New York garnering local sponsorships, team in Philadelphia, that whole that whole breadth of of local brands coming in to support a team now that has a community affiliation, has a city affiliation. Those are big opportunities, and and. Uh, uh, just really getting going. Uh, what Overwatch League has done and the Call of Duty League has done with the franchises, obviously mm -hmm. that's the means by which they are invoking those those sponsorships. But um, we we believe strongly in that model, and we're investing in that model on a, to helping colleges build up their own infrastructure, not just inter between the schools, but now on campus in the school uh, as part of their their product offering, so to speak, or their programming for. Students, it's a we 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 are a big believer in it. We think it's going to take esports to the next level. Mm. And my my experience um, thus far working with community sports, and always the hardest thing is is making it as turnkey and as easy to understand as possible. Do you guys have like a an easy subset where you can explain to them? Because the the difficulty for me as someone who works in the market always is they come to you and you know they've obviously got a basic understanding of what they'd like to do, which is just yeah. get their kids to play games against each other. 
But unfortunately, there's so many questions in the background that we need to ask. Is it double elimination? Is it single elimination? Is it a, is it a round robin? And then what's the game? Okay. It's Fortnite. Is it 1v1, 2v2, 3v3, 4v4? You know, is there a prize pool and all of these kind of things? So do you have a couple of turnkeys that you go to this, you know, this, this college, this high school and say, look, here's exactly what we think you should run. You can either do FIFA. It's 1v1. You can do Fortnite. It's 2v2. You can do League of Legends. It's 5v5. Here's the format. Go and do it. Well, we've, you know, that's been our business. We, we've run thousands of, of tournaments and, um, you know, we, we, and to, you know, to answer your question in, in a little different way, we also, not only do we know the templates for the, the games, um, that work best, um, and there, there are, there are some conventions about, you know, tournament structure and the double limb or, or, um, um, you know, best of Matt or whatever, but, and, and we, mm-hmm. we follow those. We try and, we try and model as much after the pros as we can because that's the we're 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 getting a more serious uh, amateur player just by virtue when they when they compete in our events they're they're definitely wanting to to show their stuff and and they've got some skills and and uh, they come to us because we can help elevate them and put them in the in the proper spotlight but um uh for for um so much so much of it um we 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 do have templates and we know that. You don't run a Call of Duty event the same way you run a Street Fighter event. You don't run a uh, run a Madden event the same way you you run even an NHL event or or, mm. or you know there's League of Legends versus Counter Strike. There's so many different templates, but but that's what we do. Is what we and and it's a business for us. You know we we will help a brand comes to us and says or a, or a, a, we do a lot with with pro teams, the NHL pro teams or the NBA pro teams. They come to us and say, hey, how do we how do we activate a, an esports event around the NBA 2K game or around the NHL game or around the Madden game? And we'll we'll help them. We'll we'll figure out the, the right structure, the right approach. Does it you know should it should it start online and finish offline? Uh, should it only be online? Should it only be a live event? We we you know, we've run just about every permutation there is for those kind of events and have enough experience to, to know what's going to resonate um, with the with the players, what's going to be resonate with the audiences. What, where the most opportunity to bring sponsors in will be, how, to, how what the right way is to represent those sponsors and integrate those sponsors. So, so yeah, mm-hmm. it, there there's a lot to it, but um, but uh, those who have had experience with it, uh, it's it's not it's not that difficult. When somebody comes to us and says, "I want to do this," we uh, we lay out the options and say we we'd recommend you do you do B over C, something like that. Mm. Now that definitely makes sense, and I think you know something that I've talked about so much to people. Um, in the past few years is understanding, you know, exactly who your audience is and building things to be, to be participatory, which is, you know, something obviously that, that you guys focus on. So like a common question for me is, you know, hey, Chris, we've got this small event. We're running an internet cafe. You know, how do we make an awesome broadcast? And often I say, well, who's, you know, who's your audience here? Your audience really are the people who are playing in the game. Do, yeah. do people want to tune into a professional studio-based, you know, live Twitch stream just to watch kids play games? Probably not. You're probably better off spending that money on getting more kids in through the door, giving them better opportunities, providing them with better scholarships or a larger prize pool and, you know, spending your money, you know, in that kind of role. And, that, and the same thing that, you know, okay, if we want to get kids in, we want to give them as much of an opportunity as play as possible. So single elimination, double elimination just doesn't really make much sense because you only get one game, you get two games and then you get knocked out instantly. Whereas, you know, thinking back to when I was a, a junior Counter-Strike source player before I was a CSGO semi-pro, I would love to go to events that allowed me a round robin because at least then I could lose three matches in a day rather than one or two. So I got to, you know, have a bit more of that experience to, to go yeah, and, and play right. that line that life. Absolutely right. Yeah. Mm. So what does the scale of like collegiate esports look like? Like we talked about before we started recording, you know, for, as someone from Australia, um, and to prephrase for anyone watching, we don't have anywhere near the affinity to our universities or colleges that you do in the US. Most people don't live on campus. Um, most people don't really care about what university they went to. They don't have that identity. They don't wear, you know, I went to RMIT University. I don't have an RMIT hoodie. And it's very rare to see anyone who does. Um, and yes, there is some prestige. You know, the university I went to is very good for social work. Um, there's some other universities that are great for psychology or, or medicine or something like that. But they don't have any sort of affinity like you do. There are some college sports in Australia and college sports games. But for me, you know, I, I played volleyball in in um, in university, but that was in no way competitive. That was just a volleyball club rather yeah. than a volleyball professional tournament and team. But looking at, I think Snapchat was my first 
exposure to the collegiate scene. I remember when they started doing those location-based geo um, tags that you could do and, you know, that have that story, that combined story of something special is happening, like running with the Bulls or the FIFA World Cup or they had this collegiate NFL finals and it just blew my mind away. There was tens of thousands of people in a stadium watching, you know, 18-year-olds play ball. There was, um, you know, tens of thousands of people in the parking lot outside, um, you know, in the um, you know, having some beers and having some fun and things like that as well. So do we see, or do, or do you see the potential for college esports to get there? And my challenge as to why I believe like maybe it won't is because do you need that pathway? If you're in esports, you've already got professionals like Booger who are, who was what, 15, 16 years old when he won the Fortnite World Cup. You've got um, a professional player now, a Fortnite player called Brezzo in Australia who won, you know, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars at the, um, Australian Open Cup against players that were flown over from China, against Benji Fisher, against FaZe players. And this kid was an unsigned 17-year-old with a controller who's never played at a live event before. So I guess there's two. So to recap, really, there's there's two kind of questions in there. Like number one, you know, do do you see like collegiate esports getting to the size that collegiate sports is? And B, does it does it need to? And does it need that professionalism? Or can it just be a fun and, you know, semi-esports leisure activity instead? My view, and I think our view as a as a company, is that um, you know we're still so early in esports. It's still such uh, in its formative days, and and um, you you think think about how traditional sports grew, um, not only in in terms of uh, fandom, but also in terms of participation. And you know, I'll, I'll contrast you if you're a baseball player in the United States, and and you you're you're six years old. You, you have a pretty good idea about what you need to do to become a pro. You're yeah, a yeah. six-year-old esports player today, and you, wanted, you, would, you would likely have no idea what, what the right route is to, to go. And mm-hmm. most traditional sports in, in, in the U.S. and, and even you know, around the world have, have that sort of infrastructure. They have a path. They, they, you start in, I'll use the baseball analogy, you start in, in Little League, and or start, actually you start in T-ball, and then... And then you graduate to Little League and you go to play junior league or play for your junior high in your high school. And then you go to college and then you go to semi-pro. And if you're good, you'll make it to the, to the major leagues. That, esports doesn't really have that. And, and college is a big part of, of uh, at least in traditional sports, college in the United States is a big part of, of how players get elevated. They, they, number one, they distinguish themselves in their college careers. Number two, they put themselves in the spotlight. Number three, they they do well. They're in the top, you know, one percent. Uh, they get drafted and and go to play in Major League Baseball or NBA, National Basketball Association, or NFL or whatever. That doesn't really exist in in esports. Mm-hmm. Getting there, it's getting more. There's more structure there. I I think the the fact that we've had these big pro team leagues, these especially the franchise models that look very familiar to a lot of people. They look just like the NBA or the NFL, a franchise. Uh, in a city that's playing a franchise in another city, part of a league structure, they play a, a preseason. They have a well, they have a, co- they have a combine, they have a draft, they have a preseason, they have a regular season. They do go into playoffs and championships. That looks an awful lot like the NBA and the NFL, and and um, and that's that's a that's a great thing for esports players. That's their aspiration now. They see Call of Duty League, they see LCS, they see Overwatch League, they see uh, Flashpoint, they see. Um, uh, they they see uh, NBA 2K and and now they say okay that's that's what I want to do that's my aspiration but now what do I do to get there and mm. college is in, at least in the United States is one of those paths and and the great thing about colleges um, you know you could couldn't say this three years three or four years ago but today nearly every college in the United States has is involved in esports in some form or fashion meaning either as a competitive sport. Um, they're in, in enabling uh, teams of players or, or students in, on their college campus to take part in competitions. We're we're part of that organization our, through CSL. This notion of engendering uh, intercollegiate uh, competition. We're, we're we're part of the scene and part of the organization. Uh, mm-hmm. But now the schools they're looking well beyond just competition. They're looking at esports as a recruiting mechanism, gaming as a recruiting mechanism, because. Kids want to. They want. My God, I, if I I can't be a player, but I want I want to be in gaming some form or fashion, and as a business or in the production around esports or around marketing or analytics or or any number. I just saw, I just saw a posting, and I I, I didn't didn't print it. I got to find it again. But there are eighty five dis- disciplines being taught in. 
college curriculums and as as career opportunities, and 80, 86 of them are are applicable to esports. So so the so the notion of of esports on a college campus as a developmental for a player, I I think is is coming. We're, we we and others are helping with that that organization that galvanization. But I think even more importantly, the notion of esports as a business, the esports as a as a career. Um, you know the curriculum around esports. We're, we're help, we've helped a number of colleges build programming, not just around competition, but also around curriculum. Uh, that's a really important thing um, that colleges bring. And and as that as that builds, I do I do think more college competition is going to come. The more organization around that, when people can see, when players can see, yeah, okay, if I go to this school, I do well. I'm gonna I'm gonna be drafted by by Houston Outlaws in the Overwatch League. Um, that that's that's a that's a path that is more clear. Anything that can help clarify this 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 path, the 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 feeder mechanisms, the 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 grassroots, the developmental mechanisms. That's a good thing for esports overall. It's a really good thing um, for colleges to 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 get involved in. Mm, I I really yeah, and I mean, there's been so many of us that have been talking for a long time about that pathway, right? And it's still not set, and it's frustrating because so often you have. You know, I'll get a message on LinkedIn and just be like, Hey, I think my kid's pretty good at Fortnite. Yeah. You know, what do I do? And I go, Well, I don't, unfortunately, I don't have an answer. And they go, What do you do? And I say, Well, I found out esports by accident. And then it was up to me to go and do all of the research myself and how to get better, find the leagues to play. And it took me a lot of time. It's not easy. And it's not the same as like what you said. You know, even here in Australia, you understand that you can play for your primary school. You know, you can play for your high school and you can go to your local leagues and then you can go to state and you can go to international. Or you know, or to the private leagues and things like that, yeah. depending on what yeah. the game is. But there's uh, just other, none of that pathway in esports. I was just going to say one other thing about college esports, and and not not really much further clarified, um, other than the fact that that there is intercollegiate competition now, but but it's still very fragmented. You know, there's a number of different ways to get involved. We, we you know, we we don't think of ourselves of the as the NCAA. We we act like the NCAA of Esports, meaning engendering intercollegiate um, competitions via conference uh, organization and scheduling and and uh, you know match match play, but we're really the anti NCAA. NCAA is very focused on just athletic departments, but as as you're, you're likely aware, in in the collegiate realm, teams form from any number of locations out of at any number of sources on a college campus. So. So you think about a football team, yeah, it's the athletic department that that controls it, uh, soup to nuts on a college campus. But for an esports team, a League of Legends team on a college campus, it could, it could come out of um, a STEM program. It could come out of a computer science program. It could come out of a student life program. Some of the biggest programs in colleges in the United States come are born out of and supported by student life programs. So, mm. so we're, we and and yes, the athletic departments are are starting to to bring esports. In under their wings, but still, that's the that's a that's a, a, a small percentage of the, the overall teams, and and you know, frankly, for us, we 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 encourage all. We want as much participation as possible. Um, and in the, the one comment I'm, I'm driving towards is that still in in college, even with this organization, there's still a lot of fragmentation. Um, you know, there are different organizations, there are different uh, structures, there are there are different uh, you know publishers want a a their league structured a little bit differently than maybe another publisher, and and what we're trying to do, and you'll, I think you'll start seeing a, l- a lot of this in the coming years, that we really want to um, to reduce the fragmentation in um, in co- collegiate esports, and I think we have a we have some. I won't reveal too much, but I think we have a structure um, that's going to help. We're gonna, we're going to have a new footprint, um, a new realm that we'll be part of that will help in that regard, bringing media, traditional sports, and esports together. Um, that the notion of it becoming more mainstream as a result, um, that will also uh, help uh, with with defragmentizing, if that's a word, um, the the collegiate esports realm. So so we've got we've got some big big ideas, and and uh, we're we're hoping to to uh, bring that start bringing them home uh, this coming this coming season. There you go. So I guess for anyone who's you know was used to to using a PC heavily 10 years ago, sometimes you need to defrag your hard drive. I guess that's where we're, where we're at today with esports, right? We're defragging collegiate esports. There you go. That's right. <laughs> exactly. And I just go back to like that same thing I said before, you know, the most exciting, but also, you know, the best and the worst thing about esports is the amount of content out there. 
it's it's great that you know any anyone can really kick together a team of five players and play in a top ESL league or a top face it league or something like that. You don't need to pay that massive franchise fee. You don't have to go through yeah. the red tape of being selected. But then it also comes with those massive downsides, which is how do you get found? You know, how do you get the skills to train? And I'm always torn between those two all the time. And I and I did see some comments here in the LinkedIn live chat as well. People asking. You know, for example, there was one question about, um, you know, what were the implications of traditional media adopting esports be for the collegiate scene? You know, is there any predictions around that? And, you know, similar questions from a lot of people as to, you know, how will these blue chip brands change the way that we try to do esports? How, how will the IOC and Olympics coming in try to change the way that, that we do things? And is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? And I don't, I don't have the answer. And I'm, you know, and I don't, I don't expect you to have the answer either, but it's just such a confusing point for me that there's always those two sides of the coin that I love that Brezzo could come down from Queensland as 17 years old and he can beat yeah. players that are signed to phase. He beat players that were flown from China, that were flown from London, that were flown from California and New York and just be an absolute nobody in the sense of things. And then he is able to explode a career just based off the back of that. But also it's hard because how do you get to Brezzo's point? How do you have that structure to be able to actually have the skills that he does without having to go out and find them yourself? How can you be put through that pipeline like a kid is through Little League Baseball, through football, through soccer, through anything else like that? I, I do. I, I'm just a believer in the fact that I, now I've used, I mean, how many how many um, traditional sports analogy, and analogies have I used here? And, and, it, and, it, and it helps. It's, it, it helps with understanding. It helps with clarif- clarification. I think the more we can do that, the the, 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 the more understanding will will um, will generate for esports, but it but it can also only get you so far. As you know, mm-hmm. to your point, it's a whole new realm to be a to be a um, online athlete uh, than it is a physical athlete. From just from the perspective of of how you engage, what you engage with, I I don't I I'm not suggesting that you know as we as we have said for, for since our inception, these these are we we these are real athletes. These are these are. The, the play, p- people who play esports are real athletes, and they have to be trained like real athletes, and they have to be nurtured by it like real athletes, and and supported, and and uh, and um, and brought brought through the 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 the, the, the funnel as a as a real athlete or, or a, tra- a traditional athlete is. So so um, so we're we're um, we, we believe that, that you know back to the to the and I think you sort of hit hit on. I I do think. Um, Traditional media still has an opportunity to get involved and to and to amplify, uh, especially on a regional basis, because a lot of the sports infrastructure, the traditional sports infrastructure in the United States, is is regionally based. These are these regional sports networks that Fox runs or NBC runs or or um, uh, ESPN runs that that the, they mm. support regional sports and and the template there is is supporting regional esports and that that's a. There's a whole big, you know, very perfected advertising model that supports all that, and and I think that's where um, where the where traditional media can make a difference and in building uh, building up presence on a regional basis um, and the regional rivalries that that you know I I'm from Minneapolis from Minnesota the Minnesota Wisconsin rivalry is one of the biggest every year and and it's in football it's in hockey it's in a number of different sports but and that's all really. Um, brought about by the the fact and and the support from the regional sports networks that that support all that. So I so I'm sort of blending a couple of your questions together, but I do think regional esports has a big opportunity that still is untapped. It still is just getting started, um, uh, and and largely I, I I think the collegiate realm, uh, regional collegiate esports realm has a big um, has a, a big opportunity. Yeah, I think a really important thing. That, that I like that you said there is, you know, yes, it kind of works well thus far, but it only gets you so far until you can ad- adopt those things. And I, you know, right. I remember listening, I listened to this guy, they call like the godfather of podcasting. Apparently he kind of started podcasting and he was on Joe Rogan's podcast. It was an interesting thing that he was trying to explain to Joe quite a few times that Joe wasn't getting, which is the difference between like what he called like advertising money and real advertising money. And I guess the difference is, you know, a lot of the time talking to esports teams, they're trying to sell that $100,000 sponsorship. They're trying to sell that $500,000 sponsorship. But how do we get to the point when we're selling, you know, a $1 billion um, rights fee for content? Like yeah. is extremely common. I mean, it even happens in Australia. They're doing sure. $1 to $2 billion sports deals for Australian only sports like AFL and NRL. So, you know, sports in Australia is bigger than esports globally, which shouldn't happen. We've only got 23 million people here. So, 
you know, it's how do we, how do we learn from the traditional space to get away from those, you know, $10,000 pre-rolls on YouTube and, um, you know, just streaming, trying to, trying to simulcast stream on Twitch and to everyone else and, you know, get our content just listed for free on NBC just to see how it goes and, you know, trying to get that $100,000 course air sponsorship for my league and, and things like that too. How do we get to that, you know, $50 million multi-year deal with the Coca-Cola for a massive, you know, franchise where it's 80 colleges are all playing? You know, that, that would make sense to someone like Coca-Cola or to Red Bull to get into that, you know, to get in with the youth and, and to sell across to them. But we're not, we don't have that, we don't have that structure set there yet. And it can be scary because I think a lot of the times esports people don't want to be told what to do. And I think that, you know, while the Olympics getting involved in esports, I think there's definitely some good points. I think there's a lot of negative PR about that in the past because from what I've seen is, is that, um, a lot of the time the IOC has basically said, we know what's best. We're going to tell you what to do. And that is not what, I mean, that's not what a teenager wants to hear. And a lot of the times that's how esports operates, like a teenager. And, you know, you can see the comments from people. They say, well, screw you. We're making, you know, some of our guys are making millions of bucks and, you know, we're selling out stadiums. So who are you to tell me what to do? But ultimately, yeah, there is some truth into what they're saying. You know, the Olympics is massive and they get, they get, they literally get um, whole nations to bid tens of millions of dollars just to host them there rather than having to go and beg a studio hall to hire them out <laughs> to pay them. It's the opposite way around. They get paid to go there. So there are definitely some learnings that we can take from that. But yeah, I guess once again, it goes back to that same thing, right? It's the best and the worst thing about esports is it's so fluid and so open. There's so much content. It's so exciting. There's so much going on, but it's also the worst thing. There's just so much going on. The, the you know, I, I, I started talking about it with the Turner thing that, uh, you know, how they showed a lot of, a lot of, a uh, uh, great savvy and, and recognized mm-hmm fact that that um there was no predictability there's no there's no scheduling for for esports and 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 uh, you know they're they're a sports network too they're a very successful sports network and they they use that template to to bring esports in um and and now give it a home you know this notion of having a home having a place where you know on a friday night you go at 10 o'clock you're going to watch a counter-strike match between some really good teams and and uh that was the the start still by and large that that dynamic still doesn't exist. Yes, you know, Call of Duty League's got a, done a great job. Overwatch League, very predictable now. You know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you're going to see the matches. They they're good at communicating when those are um, now. On, you know, obviously now on YouTube, but but um, but that still is in the minority of of what esports is all about. And and I, I do think this is where traditional media can be helpful. Um, and and the template around how uh, traditional media got so big was. You knew what to do. You know where to go. You knew what you knew exactly what if you wanted to watch baseball, you wanted to watch football, or you wanted to watch hockey. You knew where to go, and you knew what time, and you knew what day it was. That still doesn't, other than the the big pro, the big pro activation, that doesn't really exist. So, so any any organization, any predictability, any scheduling that can help, um, it will Im- improve the the quality of the of experience, and will um, certainly improve the size of the audience. Mm. Yeah, I'd like to. I'd like to get your thoughts or something. Then you've got my brain ticking off exactly what you said. So there's a there's a couple of things, right? So, like, I, I went to the Overwatch World Cup 2016 that was in Australia, and I think it was yeah. Team Australia, Team Finland, and there were there were two others as well. I can't remember what other countries were there, and it was a sold out arena. You know, it was 1,100 tickets. But what what I noticed is that the fans were there for Overwatch. They weren't there for the players. So the, um, the Blizzard store, there was a line of like 200 people before it opened and before the line would end, it would all be sold out by 10 a.m. You know, the store would open at 9.35 and it would be sold out by 10.05 every day. What also I noticed is that, you know, it, it was instantly sold out with the crowd. People were having a fantastic time going nuts, you know, inside the venue, cheering for Team Australia, who was playing very well at the time and who qualified. What also I noticed is that Team Australia could just walk around in public without yeah. being stopped by people. So they were obviously there for the game, not for others. So then if I transpose that into my personal life, I will watch the UFC basically every time it's on just because I know it's going to be a certain quality because it's UFC and I enjoy the content, which is mixed martial arts. Yeah. Also, every year I used to go to DEF CON, which is like a hard style, hardcore music festival, like hard, like hard techno, hard bass. And I would not know any of the artists, but I'll go there because I like the environment. People are quite friendly at these kind of events, and I'd like to go and have fun with my mates. But I wouldn't have any idea as to who's playing ever. I would just buy the tickets, rock up, and have a fantastic time. So how do we how do we get to that point in esports? Then we can take that essence that I've already seen with a little bit in in Overwatch, but take that essence of 
traditional sports where people will just go along and people will just watch every week because they know they're going to get some damn good Counter-Strike. And they won't even necessarily know who the teams are that are playing and maybe they'll be made a fan of a team afterwards, which is what happens to the UFC. People jump on bandwagons of single fighters they've never heard of when they have a good performance. But how do we get to that point in esports where they go, well, you know, 10, 10 a.m. PT every single Saturday, there's going to be a Rocket League match on and I'm going to tune in because I enjoy Rocket League and I know the competition is going to be good. It's, it's, um, it's, a, good, it's a good question. You know, I, I, do, I do think that um, you know, one of the things that does hold esports back, uh, if, it isn't, if it isn't a Madden or a FIFA or an NHL game, what holds, what holds some of the, the understanding back and say, you have to understand the game, right? You have to understand Overwatch. You have to understand League of Legends. You have to understand Rocket League is probably a, uh, is, mm. is pretty hard to understand in that regard. Hard to, hard to master that game, but for very easy to understand what's going on. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so p- part of it is, is that, although, you know, it's interesting in this conversation I was having yesterday with the, one of the Fox Sports network guys we were we were talking an awful lot about turner and counter-strike and and he didn't know a thing about counter-strike but he but he thought it was fascinating and he was a he's a you know 50 year old guy and and was talking about how it it got him you know it, it, the fact that it was on television traditional television the fact that he didn't know what was happening but he could kind of get it because it was you know counter-strike's a shooting game you kind of get what what what's happening and and what the what the objective of the of the game is but but he said um, he said something. He said I, I started talking about my friends. They got a, they got hooked on it as well. And it was the notion of of here is competition. Here is here is something that's again back to this notion of it's on traditional um, television. It's 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 on a Friday night when nothing else was really on. And his this whole group of friends of his, completely out of the demographic, got addicted to watching Counter Strike on on Turner. So so there's something to be said for. I think there's an understanding of the game that that is a bit of a barrier. Um, the the more that all of us can do, the more the publishers can do to to and uh, engender that understanding for a for an audience. That's a that's obviously a good thing. Um, but but it's a but it's a fascinating thing that what 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 you went through and whatever others are going through is they see esports for the first time and they they're they're sort of fascinated by it, but they say I don't have a clue as to what what I'm watching or what I'm seeing. That mm. that's the, that that is that always will be the challenge. These games have to get more watchable, more relatable, um, and and then the audiences will and the following will will, will grow. Uh, but and, and to your you know to your point um, also the who are the stars? You know who are the stars in this? You know you watch the you watch the Australian uh, Overwatch League team. You know big big players in the Overwatch League and big players in the over, Overwatch overall Overwatch scene. But you could walk freely amongst. Uh, uh, amongst the crowds, and not nobody would bother them. I, I think I think that starts that's starting to change too. But I but I also mm-hmm. think that you know the, just how accessible this is. I've talked about this a fair amount too. I went to the I went to CFP the college football playoffs in San Jose a couple of years ago. Um, it's a big thing. It's like the Super Bowl for college for for college football. And here is um, Pat Mahomes, now major superstar. He had just been drafted into the into the into the NFL, and he's walking around. He's and he's protected by bodyguards. He's a he's a 22 year old kid. Um, yeah, great great athlete coming out of college. Uh, got got a got a nice position. Was Kansas City Chief drafted, um, but he's walking around with bodyguards around him. At that same event is Ninja. Now I would tell you know three years ago Ninja was far more popular than Pat Mahomes was, and he's walking around signing autographs, being very accessible. He's there. Uh, part of a part of a an, another activation that was going on um, for a, for a colli- another collegiate event, but but he could he huge star and the fact that he made himself so available so accessible um, it's just a that's a different dynamic and the, and different culturally um, that mm-hmm. and I think I think esports can help traditional sports these athletes who are who are so much on pedestals and so much isolated from they they recognize how powerful. That that following now is, and and that's this is what esports has brought. Esports has brought the fact that that you you be accessible, you be um, you be available, you be a you could be a good person, um, and you'll you'll get rewarded for that. You'll 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 get rewarded for that monetarily. You'll be, get rewarded for it in terms of your persona. You'll get rewarded for it in terms of um, what your what your what your contracts are, are all about. So, so another mm-hmm. whole other thing that I think esports has done really well. 
the athletes, the, 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 the key players, the key personas in the space are very accessible. They, they recognize which side of their, their bread, the, their butter is and, or their, which side of the butter their bread is or whatever. Uh, <laughs> yeah. but, but that's a, but that's a, that's a, that's a learning that, that now traditional athletes are, are coming to, to understand and to appreciate and to understand that it's the fans are, are, are what made them who they are and mm. that, that giving it back and, and acknowledging that, that those fans and not not giving them the the they're surrounded by bodyguards sort of um, approach and image um, not not and not that was not a disparaging thing for Pat Mahomes he's a super cool guy and um, but just a really different dynamic and how how these two dynamics brought up around com- competitive play are will would would generate two very different sorts of um, uh, athletes and the way they approach the world so another a whole other conversation. Yeah, it keeps keeps making me go back so often to something that um, Clinton and I recorded a talk for this influencer marketing conference. If anyone wants to look it up, you can you can see all the talks afterwards. They had people, including like the it was like the seventh largest you know TikTok celebrity in the world and the the founder of um of Triller, which is you know taking taking over social media at the moment, things like that too. But the thing that Clinton said is that understanding who's influential and who's popular. Yeah. And I thought that was an important thing because I, you know, I've been looking a lot at, say, the Australian Football League here in Australia. And, you know, we do have select stars who are on, you know, multi-million dollar contracts, you know, as, as far as the scale of that goes, um, you know, it's a few hundred million dollar business. They bought a stadium, they bought Etihad Stadium, and it's now Marvel Stadium. Um, you know, during the semifinals and the finals of the AFL, they'll do, they'll do a hundred thousand tickets at the MCG to sell. So it's, so it's quite sizable. But what you can see is that, a lot of the football players are popular or famous just because they're in that team. But you go to their Twitter account and they've got 200 followers. Yeah. You go to their Instagram account, they've got, you know, maybe 3,000 followers or something like that. And you know, the question from Clinton was brought up often around some esports teams. Just because you have a franchise in the Call of Duty League and maybe have 100,000 followers, does that mean that you're influential or does that just mean that you're popular? And what's the difference between those two? And I think that's what I find a lot with these traditional sports people is that they're famous because they're on TV. They're famous yeah. because they're signed to a team and because of the position they hold, you know, maybe they're, maybe someone's famous instantly because they become the CEO of Google. They're instantly famous, but it doesn't necessarily make them influential. You know, like right. a journeyman um, CEO is very different to an Elon Musk or a Steve Jobs or a Bill Gates, you know, even though they're in the same position and very similar in, tr- in traditional sports, you know, if a highly influential, very active person, like a like a Michael Jordan or like a Shaquille O'Neal is very different to someone else who's played at the top level who doesn't enjoy the media spotlight, doesn't post on Instagram, doesn't post on social media. And yeah. I and I'm thinking, you know, that's what we're seeing a lot with that traditional sports versus esports, where in gaming they are these influential people. There is FaZe who it still blows my mind to this day. And it also blows my mind that more people don't talk about this. FaZe mm-hmm. did a meetup in New York City and the line was sixteen city blocks oh, for people right. to come and see them. Like that's ridiculous. That's like that's like Beatles type fandom, of you know the amount of people that would that would go and and you know the teenage girls that would go crazy to see them back in the day. That's Justin Bieber type fandom, you know. And then they did a meet up the next day with one creator in California, and apparently it was like 105 degrees, and three four thousand kids turned up, and it got too rowdy. The kids were trying to break down the temporary fences to get closer to this guy, and they had to, and the police came and shut it down, you know, like. That, that is the fandom, you know, that we're looking at. But to, to yeah. what you were saying as well is that, you know, the accessibility is so different. If I think about like a Gen Z influencer these days compared to a traditional actor or actress, you know, Hugh Jackman, Wolverine, he's popular because he's on the silver screen, he's on stage. But, you know, he'll come out, he'll do his one movie a year, two movies a year, and then go off into his wherever he lives, his Hollywood Hills mansion, you won't hear from him ever again. You know, you might be posting on Instagram once every two months. And that's the traditional thing of how a movie star will work. And that's part of their allure. But if you're a um, influencer in the mainstream today, you need to be, you know, creating content on TikTok. You need to be creating tweets all the time. You need to be on Instagram posting like six stories a day. You need to be doing YouTube vlogs once a week. You need to be streaming live on Twitch or IGTV or something like that. And you need to be constantly accessible. Whether it's through Patreon, whether it's through donations, whether people pay for that access, you still need to have that access available. And people need to be able to ask you questions. You need to answer them. You need to be able to donate to Ninja on stream and he'll read out your comment. And you feel like you're part of the family. You're part of what's going on. And I think that's a massive difference. You know, can you, 
can you, um, you know, send a message to Shaquille O'Neal and he'll retweet it on Twitter or reply? Like most likely not. Even these accessible, you know, mainstream people. Or Rick Fox, yeah, sure, you could, but, um, you know, it's very, very select few that you can. But can you with a ninja or a Pokimane or a Valkyrie or a Shroud or someone like that? Very likely. It happens all the time. They're always retweeting fan art. They're always replying to people, reading out comments and things like that too. So it's like that accessibility. And once again, I think it goes back to them. They're not just popular. They're not just famous. They're actually influential. They actually have fans and followers. That's well said. Absolutely right. Mm -hmm. Cool. So I guess, you know, one of the last things I want to talk about, because I think we talked about this, this topic quite a lot. So one of the other things I want to talk about, I guess, is your history in the space, you know, where you came from and, and where you're at today. So, you know, everyone's, everyone's got a lot of positive words to say about Wimstocks in behind the scenes and, and in the public, which is always good. But, you know, I was just doing a bit of browsing through your, through your LinkedIn account. I'd love to learn a little bit more about your history in business. You know, how did you get into esports? And, and um, you know, obviously you've held some pretty senior positions in the past in the traditional games industry. I, um, yeah, I came into this realm in a, in a kind of a funny way. I was, um, I was a math major in college. I, I was actually not a very good math major. But I was a math major and and um, started to code a little bit. Uh, you know, I in, back in those days, uh, com- computer and and computer programming was was relatively new, and I thought I could be good at it. I sucked at it, um, but I but I got the bug for for computers and and uh, we used to make these little Fortran games uh, in the in the college I went to in the in the computer lab at that at that time. Um, and, and it was fun and sort of, uh, but I was always a game guy. I, my dad had a, when I was growing up, I had pinball machines in my, uh, you know what pinball is, uh, Chris? You probably know. Yeah. What the, okay. Just making yeah. sure. Um, some, people don't, some people don't. So I just wanted to double check. Really? Uh, but I, by the time I was nine, I could, I could take a pinball machine apart and put it back together again. So I had this, this okay. sort of fascination with, with the mechanics around a, a, a big game machine, which was, which was pinball. And, and uh, so all of that, um, and I, I guess I had sort sort of a math mathematical mind. It wasn't really ever interesting to me. It came easy to a degree, um, but that was what all of that 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 uh, an amalgam uh, sort of got me interested in in um, the tech side of things and the computer side of things, and that that led pretty readily to to gaming and and uh, got involved with a company that was in the video. Just a video uh, VHS distribution business. They started getting involved in software. I won't bore you with all the details, but this is in the era of Egghead and Computerland and Businessland. Those were the retailers that that sold software. And um, I started getting interested in went went into the store and see these these big boxes that uh, Sierra Online had. Gabriel Knights. So you might remember some of the some of those games that were Sierra Online only uh, early games. Roberta Davis was the a woman was the was the publisher slash developer slash uh, author of these games and and um, was was for me was some of the most uh, um, interesting times and really most stimulating times about what a game could be and how it played out um, in an interactive way on a computer. So so long story. Get through college. Um, I go to work for AT and T and the computer. Um, processing uh, realm uh, got involved in selling computers. Got more involved in in computing and and made the pivot to the to this company that uh, got was doing distribution for retail stores. Uh, started a software uh, realm. Started a software realm that was broader than just gaming, but gaming became a big piece of it. And and literally that was how I started um, my first first job on the publishing side was with GT Interactive. GT Interactive. Uh, if you're at all familiar with GT Interactive, uh, was very very uh, influential. I'll use influential, not just popular, but influ- influential. And in, in uh, uh, the early days of of, of gaming, uh, published Doom, published Quake, published Duke Nukem, some really cornered the market on first person shooters in the early days. Oh, all wow. PC, uh, Unreal. We were we were Epic's right. uh, for Unreal, and we got to that's how I got to know Mark Rain um, quite well. And and um, I, I went from sales to sales and marketing to becoming head of publishing. We merged with the company uh, uh, called G, uh, Infogram. Uh, big, big. Uh, you might remember Infogram was a big publisher in many regards. The same sort of structure we had in the United States, but they were European based. Perfect amalgam, perfect uh, um, uh, uh, way to merge the companies. Both big publishing companies had great distribution 
And then we bought Hasbro Interactive, the, the interactive division of Hasbro. And as we were going through the due diligence of Hasbro, um, we're all looking at this list of, of their IP, obviously Monopoly and, and Scrabble and some of the biggest board games in the world. But I, I'm going down a list and here's Atari. I said, well, when did, when did Hasbro buy Atari? Well, they bought it back in the 90s, never really done much with it. Um, they started to launch some games, some old games. They did uh, a Frogger on, on uh, PlayStation and a couple other old games. But, but the brand itself um, was sitting there dormant. And we, um, we took uh, the merch company that we had just gotten through, or to, uh, uh, GT Interactive and Infogram, and we renamed it Atari. And, and we were Atari uh, when we went live as Atari in 2003. Uh, the rebirth of Atari, I got to stand at the NASDAQ and the, in New York and push the, you don't ring the bell when you when the stock uh, ticker changes at the NASDAQ, you push a button. And so I got to push a button when we, when we um, re relaunched the Atari, our, our company as Atari and our stock doubled just based on the name alone. Everyone thought it was an IPO. Um, but um, but we so we resurrected the the Atari brand and made it made it it had always been sort of pirated at, uh, up to that point but we got it back on track and I was head of publishing for all of, of Atari um, uh, for North America and uh, and part of uh, uh, in in APAC too uh, Australia and and um, in Japan so so um, that was my that was the my Atari days where I ended up leaving Atari to start my own company called Elephant Entertainment all about digital all online that's still at that point that was still early um in the online this was 2006 and uh and sold that company to thq um long story uh won't bore you with all that it didn't like what was happening thq ended up leaving and started uh what today is our company world world gaming i started back we started back in 2009 um mm -hmm. you might remember virgin gaming uh virgin gaming was Really, before the word esports even came around, we built a, a tournaments platform that enabled people to play head-to-head -head matches for money, and um, that, that essentially is the is the the foundation of what we are today. Um, now, now a big big player in the amateur and semi-pro and, and the collegiate side of, of things. So went went mm -hmm. through that quickly, but that's uh, uh, gaming. I've been in gaming thirty years now. Um, I've I have the I have the best job on the planet. It never feels like work to me. Um, feels like we're playing every day. I I just said to my team, you know, we we are we are frantically busy right now. Everyone's ready to drop over from exhaustion. But I but I keep reminding everybody we get paid to play games. So don't don't ever bitch about that. We're, we might you can bitch about a, a lot of work, but you can't bitch about the fact we're all we're all getting paid to play games. So that's a that's a cool thing. Very true. There you go, man. A lot of a lot of star studded companies and games in in the past that you just said and it's funny um you mentioned about the virgin gaming thing too people are still trying to figure out the right formula for that these days and there's still new companies that are being launched you know one v one for money i'm seeing startups come to me with decks all the time about their brand new idea so obviously it's not brand new <laughs> well, the problem with it is it's hard to scale human behavior in that model because you know we millions of players hundreds of millions of players around the world you put a little money on that, all of a sudden it gets it gets competitive, and all of a sudden people will do stupid things. They'll cheat. They'll they'll mm. um, they'll lie about who they are. They'll they'll manipulate their profile, and mm. and as a result, you know, people who play those they never never quite sure who's on the other end of the joystick. They're not sure are we am I really playing this guy who says he's a four, but he's maybe a ten, and he's going to take my money. The, the, the problem with that that it's it's not technological uh, scale. It's behavioral scale. How do you how do you get people comfortable with the fact that you don't know who is on the other end of the joystick that can the the, the more we we did profiles we did we did uh, history you know um, we used uh, Elo as a as a mechanism to rank players that not only took into account who they played um, their opponents but all their opponents' opponents as well and. Still, after after uh, all the assurances that we 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 felt we were giving great assurances to to players as to who they were playing, couldn't scale that behavior. It was a it was a tough thing. So I that's that's the all the technology in the world can can't really help you with that. It's really a, a human thing you, that the human behavior around playing for money and um, people who you know that we we used to say playing for even for ten dollars brings out the worst in people. It brings out just the 
absolute worst. They'll figure out a way to cheat. They'll figure out a way to game the system. And, um, and we, uh, we, we dealt with, with those, that kind of behavior a lot. So I, 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 I love the model still. I think someone's going to figure out the best way to do it. We can still on our platform, you can still play one V one, but we don't promote it all that much. It was always confused with gambling. People thought, Oh, what, what you're doing is gambling. And, so, well, no, we're not. It's that skill-based gaming. It's legal. Uh, you have to follow certain rules and for certain structures in order to make sure it stays legal. But, but, but now with the with the mm -hmm. software on gambling, um, uh, around so much, um, the head-to-head -head model is is probably a really good model to bring back and and not be so so concerned about the gambling affiliations or the associations with with uh, what 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 potentially could be gambling. So, so I, I'm mm -hmm. I'm applauding anybody who's still wanting to build that platform i'd love to love to see it and love to help you uh take it to the next level something i couldn't do uh, hopefully somebody else can do <laughs> that's good yeah one, one of our clients unicorn who's a wagering company they've they've recently launched that and i haven't haven't managed to catch up with them is to see what the uptake is but yeah it would be it would be interesting i think it's always a good idea and obviously good influencer integrations can be done you know play against me you know, drop $5, $5, whatever, and you can do it on stream. You know, there's some cool things to do around that. But yeah, always just wondering whether people are going to do that day to day. Well, we, you know, that's the other thing. Our, our platform started getting very complex because it became a really a transaction, transactional banking platform. You had to, we had pay, PayPal integration. And, and mm. as you know, if you deal with PayPal, it, it, it gets very stringent about what you can and can't do when it comes mm. to money and payment processing. So, so that was the other thing that that we we were sinking a lot of money into this platform just to make sure we could we could uh, stay on side with PayPal and and uh, but but uh, different different time and a, and a different model for us now. <laughs> thanks thanks for reminding me about that. I just realized I've been having some problems with PayPal myself. <laughs> and I just I just checked my email while you were talking and um yeah they they just um re-verified re my account out of nowhere. So apparently I don't need to fix the issues that were apparently prevalent before. Like everyone's got a PayPal story. Happened very often, so congratulations. <laughs> exactly, exactly, man. So for anyone who wants to follow you or, or any of your companies online, where's where's the best way to do so? Um, I'm on LinkedIn, Wim, Wim, Wim Stocks. You, I think I'm the only Wim Stocks on LinkedIn, but happy to, happy to engage with anybody uh, there. Um, my Twitter is at WIIIM. Um, World Gaming, uh, uh, we have a, a World Gaming has Twitter. C a Computer Star League, C, C Star League has a Twitter. We'd love to have everybody follow uh, us, uh, and uh, we're, we've got some exciting things upcoming. So um, we'll we'll be uh, we'll be getting getting some some nice PR moves uh, in the coming weeks. Fantastic, man! Can't wait. It's always it's always a good time to have a have a discussion with you. Um, You're nice to have me on, Chris. Nice to to uh, engage with me, and I appreciate I appreciate you getting up early, and and I'll and I'll stay up late. I'll stay up late for you if you get up early for me. How's that? <laughs> That's no worries at all. It's hard with it's hard with daylight savings. It makes things even worse, it, especially if someone's in New York City or, or something like that. It, it makes it pretty pretty hard. But we get it done from here from Australia. Hey, look, if nothing else in Australia, it's great having clients in the US because being paid in USD is always fun when you live here. That's 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 a truism, isn't it? Uh, that's an absolute truism. You're right about that. Yeah, yeah, and it's good. It's definitely good to learn more about your history. And you've got my brain. You got my brain flowing. There's so many conversations that um, I've had that have laid dormant, especially around those pathways um, that is now just swimming through my brain once again. It's pretty simple for me. the 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 more the more uh, clarified uh, a path is, the the more engagement we're going to get, and we're going to. But this this space, while it's big now, is going to get even bigger. So um, that's a, that's the that's the the template that I have have used. It seems to work pretty well, and and uh, we're we're always trying to clarify and 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 garner understanding as much as we can. Uh, brands, we we do a lot, obviously, in the sponsorship realm for for media for just the general population. More understanding we can we can uh, generate uh, the be the better the space is going to be. Mm. And and for anybody listening who who wants to tune into some more content as well, and for your optics too, Wim, the other, um, even before E-League, the thing that interests me that I want to learn a lot more about is the Championship Gaming Series, the CGS yeah. from 2007, 2008. So yeah. next week, um, sometime early to midweek, I've got Charles Conroy coming on, who was the general manager of uh, the Complexity team. Um, and was involved quite heavily in the background throughout the CGS. Yeah. And I want to do a bit of synopsis on that. Because obviously part of the reason it, it, it was shut down was because of the GFC. 
but a lot of the reason from talking to people just in beers and passing is, you know, due to money mismanagement and, and maybe the way that, that some certain things were set up. But I think that's a massive learning experience we can have too, because that was, you know, for, and for anyone who doesn't know, you know, that was a live, you know, three, three game series with franchise based teams with full time salaried players and location based teams. We had Sydney Underground. There was London Mint. There was Berlin Alliance. And it was played in, in with a live studio audience with, you know, confetti cannons and lasers inside. There was, um, those, uh, the ring card girls that would walk around with what the match was. But at all times, they were trying to make it as applicable to mainstream TV as possible and as accessible to outside mainstream audiences. So I think there's a lot. I, I can't wait. I can't wait for that. I want to learn. I'll, I'll be tuning in, Chris. That's great. <laughs> awesome. Well, Wynn, thanks so much for coming again, mate. And thanks to everyone for tuning in, whether it's live here on LinkedIn or whether you're listening to audio-only version of the podcast. Once again, we've got plenty more of these episodes coming. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into our podcast today. For show notes, relevant links, and upcoming projects, you can check us out online at bigesports.gg or follow us on our social medias at bigesports underscore gg. 